I'm Ayla Ellison, and you're listening to The Top Line, brought to you by Fierce Pharma and Fierce Biotech. In this week's episode, we'll be diving deep into the insights from an Accenture report that takes a close look at the sales performance of major pharma companies. That information was used to draw conclusions on how drug makers should conduct their commercial operations. But first, we're going to shine a spotlight on some of the most promising companies in the biotech world. You'll hear from Fierce Biotech senior editor, Annalee Armstrong, and staff writer, Gabrielle Mason, who will be discussing a few of the companies that really stood out on this year's Fierce Biotech Fierce 15 list. Here they are. Every year, we profile 15 of the fiercest private biotechs in the industry. This is one of our favorite special reports of the year because we really get to dig into some cool science. This is a true team effort from evaluating the companies to interviewing executives and writing profiles on each of them. This year, we asked for a focus on companies being bold, not just in the clinic, but also in the C-suite. We wanted companies that define fierceness from the bench to the boardroom. Our special report came out a few weeks ago, but we wanted to get together and talk about a few of those companies and why they made our list. I'm joined by staff writer Gabby, who contributed to the report. I'm, I'm so glad we're able to highlight this report because I think all of these companies really do deserve recognition and are doing some really groundbreaking things. Yeah. So I'm so excited to talk about my first company, Comanche Bio, which was truly my favorite. They're doing something that I think nobody else is doing. They're developing a drug for preeclampsia, which is a high blood pressure disorder in pregnancy that impacts millions. The only way to fix it is to deliver the baby, which obviously you want to wait. You want to make sure the baby is safe. So it's a really difficult disorder. We talked to Comanche's chief medical officer, Allison August, and she told us that doctors usually just administer steroids to try and delay the birth as long as possible and keep the baby safe. But a better option is really needed. That's where Comanche comes in. They're using siRNA delivered to the placenta to lower levels of a particular protein that's believed to cause preeclampsia. The idea is so cool, it lured Allison away from none other than Moderna. Wow. I'm curious, how exactly do they conduct a clinical trial in pregnant people? Yeah, it's not going to be your typical trial. One of the craziest things that Allison told me is that the FDA has historically categorized pregnant women as vulnerable, along with children and people with mental disabilities. Basically, it meant that pregnant women were considered to not be capable of making their own decisions. But that's now changing. Women who are pregnant are now categorized as complex. Comanche is starting out testing in non-pregnant women, and then they're going to move on to women who have preeclampsia but are at a low risk for early delivery. They're going to have to be really careful, of course. They're going to do some extra preclinical testing earlier in the process, and they're going to have to monitor baby and mom for a long time. You can read more about Comanche in the report, of course. It was really fascinating stuff, and I love talking to Allison. Gabby, what was one of the companies that stood out to you in your reporting? One of the biotechs that I highlighted was Carmat Therapeutics, which is led by CEO Heather Turner. And they're basically looking to treat one of America's most pervasive issues, which is obesity, along with other comorbidities that are tied to the condition. There are so many players in this space, including some really big pharmaceutical companies. So what is Carmat doing differently? 
Heather actually worked in biotech obesity space in the early 2000s and marveled at how different the landscape is now with obviously, like you said, many companies, many pharmas hard at work at developing disease modifying treatments. Most of us have probably heard of Ozempic or Wagovi. Carmot is trying to basically de develop an equivalent, but in pill form. So it won't be an injectable. So if that progresses and moves forward, that could be a great alternative for patients and boost accessibility. That's been a challenge for some of the bigger companies too, in terms of safety and tolerability. So did anything else stand out to you about Carmot? So another thing Heather talked about was just how important employee mental health is. She actually put it on par with the importance of the biotech science, which I thought was really interesting. In her time there, she's brought on new benefits for staffers and even allows workers to take an extra day off every month for wellness. So I thought that was just a great kind of concrete, tangible example of how the company and Heather are trying to look after their workers. Looking further down our Fierce 15 list, what other companies really piqued your interest, Annalie? So I got the chance to profile Saravance, which is a company working on CNS disorders. There is so much happening in this space, and it's about time we saw a resurgence of interest. So Saravance is using donated human brain tissue samples to develop a massive database of expression and epigenetic data to find the best targets for these disorders. Their CEO, Craig Thompson, told me that they're breaking down the cells into the thousands of individual genes that make them up and basically simulating how a disease would progress. They already have a few high-profile packs with Takeda and Merck Co. They have treatments in the works for Parkinson's and schizophrenia, and hopefully they're just going to add to this resurgence of interest and development in this area that, that we're starting to see. You know, we would love to profile all of our Fierce 15 companies, but we'd really run out of time. But you can check out the rest of them in our special report, which is linked in the show notes. So thanks for chatting with me, Gabby. This has been great. Thanks, Annalie. I'm glad we got to talk about this list. And now it's time to dive in to that Accenture report. By studying the sales performance of 15 major pharma companies over a five-year period, Accenture has come up with several conclusions on how drug makers should conduct their commercial operations. In short, they found that companies that have invested and innovated to find new solutions have performed better than those who rely on a more traditional commercial model. The difference can have a big impact on the top line with top performing companies realizing an extra $1 billion in sales. Ray Pressburger has been with Accenture for 18 years. He's the company's global life sciences commercial practice lead, and he has led a report titled Reinventing Commercialization, Shaping a More Modern and Sustainable Model. Fierce Pharma staff writer Kevin Dunleavy sat down with Ray to discuss the report's interesting findings. Here they are. Hey, Ray, thanks for being with us. I looked at your report. It's called Reinventing Commercialization, Shaping a More Modern and Sustainable Model. And it attempts to evaluate the commercial performance of several big pharma companies. I noticed in the report that those companies that were willing to undergo investment to improve their operations had the most success. And on the flip side, the companies that relied on traditional commercial models generally underperformed. And your methodology in this was interesting and actually really simple. You evaluated performance by comparing analyst expectations for the sales of key drugs to, the, to their actual sales. 
and you made this assessment over a five-year span from 2022. You recognized in your report that commercial performance can be influenced by a lot of outside factors that have nothing to do really with how a company commercializes its products. But you still found correlations between companies at the top and the bottom as far as performance was measured. Can you talk about that process a little bit and drawing those conclusions? It's a great question, a, a relatively complex one. And I'll, I'll try to keep the answer simple. And Kevin, just happy to be here with you. So thanks for inviting me. As you concluded, maybe to start answering the question of who's really good at commercial or whose commercial model is more or less effective is actually a, a relatively elusive question, historically speaking, because products that just have had great growth stories, sometimes it's because they're first uh, in a space or highly effective products that have longevity, maybe because they have limited competition, et cetera, et cetera, right? All of those things matter. Performance is driven by clinical profile, competitive situations, and, and so forth and so on. And so when you want to ask, well, what is the effect of the commercial model and isolating that out is, is challenging. And so we actually triangulated three different things uh, in the exercise. One, as you alluded to, is the company's ability to outperform or underperform relative to the industry analyst expectations. And so those uh, analysts from banks are looking at a company's product and portfolio and trying to look at the clinical profile and how unique it is and how it did last year. And they talk to KOLs and doctors. You can buy the transcripts for those things. And they try to estimate uh, how successful the product will be based on competitive landscape and clinical profile. And so one could argue that if you do better than that, uh, it's because you did something right commercially. And if you didn't, it's because you did something wrong. And of course, that's Im imprecise and imperfect. But if you look closely at what we did, we actually look for big patterns in it. So you'll see there's a plotted chart. We didn't want to make anybody feel good or bad in a public forum, but you'll see that we looked at only large products I think products over a few hundred million dollars in revenue. And we looked at um, companies who, let's say, most consistently in their portfolio beat the analyst expectations. So did they beat it for almost all of my products or just some of them or just one of them? And how deeply do we beat it by 5%, 10% or miss it? And then when you start to plot that, you can see the extremes. Those who are just constantly beating analyst expectations and doing it materially and those who are constantly missing it. And that gives you some looking at those extremes is, is relatively instructive. And then the next question is, what are they doing differently from each other? And that's where we actually did two independent analyses from this. One was we actually sent out a blinded piece of research through a different third party. So we didn't have bias asking executives from those companies to score themselves and rate themselves on relative areas of strength and capability. And then independently, we had our leadership team who works with those companies do the exact same exercise. And so then you try and go things together, the quantitative performance, their self-assessment and our assessment, and you really start to get at with a relatively higher degree of confidence, who are the best performers and, and a bit of why. Very interesting. I know in your role as a consultant, that you're not free to mention companies. But could you just anecdotally talk about a high-performing company and what they did, and then at the other end, a low performer and why they struggled to maximize their sales? 
let's talk about the great first. The great companies, there's a couple of them in this analysis, one or two who really stand out. You can see on the chart, I'll leave them nameless for the time being. They do a couple of things really well. Number one, I believe they, they had successfully and appropriately made ambitious investments in the fundamental areas of reinventing their end-to-end marketing models and their customer-facing model, which includes the digital marketing, omni-channel, and field spaces, starting five or six years ago, maybe even a little bit longer than that. Uh, Very large investments, very intentional to advance those capabilities, probably ahead of the curve of the industry. And as you'll see in the report, the companies who've made those investments successfully, digitizing their field, using analytics in their customer model, redefining their marketing processes in an operating way, they outperformed. And this company did that. But most importantly, while everybody else is now doing those things and has been for, let's call it the last two or three years, they've also moved on to building and investing in data and analytics infrastructures and elevating their pricing and market access capability and the role importance it it has in their commercial organization on a global level and within markets, investing in their patient access and services programs in key markets like the US and have recognized that the commercial model is more than just marketing and field, that there's other major components to it and have begun to really also embrace the more sustainable questions of diversity, equity, inclusion, and making this all sustainable for people at large. Meanwhile, to juxtapose that, the companies in the bottom left are the ones who are still fixated on just continuing to evolve their marketing and customer-facing model and not embracing these kind of next horizon, next era things. They're, They're stuck there. Uh, and continuing to make those investments. And that was, you know, that was yesterday's problem. And it's a baseline and necessary for the future. But, but there's more to commercial these days than a good customer facing model and good marketing. Now, we've seen these companies, they make major steps with R&D and new drug advancements like cell and gene therapies, advances in cancer, weight loss, immunology. And yet very little has been done by some of these companies to innovate in the commercial area. Why do you think this area has been neglected by so many companies? Oh, this is a great question. I've spent the last 18 years in commercial and you you can, in a way, I'm sure there are quantitative ways to do this, but you can also feel the energy of the industry, its ebbs and flows in different areas. And I think maybe on a rough order of seven or eight plus years ago, I think the industry was at a position where there was a big acknowledgement of the need to replenish pipelines and shift. At the time, we used to say to specialty medicines and people needed to pivot to oncology and rare diseases, et cetera. And actually, at the time, I remember we were looking at our annual CEO data that we talked to and or poll CEOs across the industry. And the number one priority was shifting the pipeline. And for a period of time, I would say that the idea of a transformational investment in commercial and a big agenda in commercial in most companies was just not a top priority. There was always continuous improvement investment. If you rewind the clock pre-COVID, it it wasn't the dominant topic. But what had begun to happen is in the last several years, 
a lot of really great scientific progress has been made and great products are coming to market, but the commercial success hasn't followed. I, there was a, there's a, a peer of ours, this company called Idea Pharma. They, they do this thing called the freshness index. And I remember a year or two ago, it, it's really basic math, but the numbers were the average of the top 30 pharma companies revenue from products launched in the last five years was something like 12%. So 12% of revenue coming from new products when we've been approving nearly 60 molecules a year the last six or seven years compared to 25 or so the era prior to that. So we've doubled the productivity in science and yet the commercial success hasn't been following. And I think I think CEOs and the industries recognize that. And our most recent CEO data suggests that extracting more growth and value out of the portfolios that they have has now reemerged as the number one priority, which is in effect embracing the fact that we need to do something different in the commercial model. We've had, we've been pumping great new science through rusty old commercial pipes and it's showing. In your analysis, Ray, you found that out of the 15 companies that you looked at, the top eight performance had an average annual gain of 1 billion in extra product sales. That of course is compared, as you mentioned to analyst expectations as a result of how they handled that commercialization. This really points to the importance of a company maximizing its efforts in that area. Do you think they realize that, that it can make this much of a difference? I think companies probably do. I don't know if they quantify it enough. Now, in our analysis there, it's easy to put a, a billion dollar number next to something and claim that it's credible. But I think anybody here who's listening could do the same math we did, which is you just take that analyst delta and you look at those who outperform and those who don't. That's all yeah. you know, public data essentially. So I think it's right there in front of our eyes. I don't know that companies that I've worked with, they look at things like marketing ROI and total investment to revenue. I don't know that they look at commercial effectiveness and its total accretive value to the performance of the organization the way that we did. I, I think I'd like to see that happen more. But yeah. I don't I do think that CEOs, chief commercial officers, the executives and our clients fundamentally believe in the value of needing to modernize their commercial models. I don't know that they all know how yet and what that means in this new era versus what it meant five years ago. But anecdotally, I think that they do. One of your key takeaways in your uh, report, Ray, was that companies have not really substantially moved from field-based teams uh, but have embraced a more forward-looking approach to the field. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I can. Th this, I'd, I'd say, is, is probably a little... It, it would have been the a bit of a faux pas or a counterculture statement probably a, a couple years ago. I'd like to believe that I've maybe changed that across many of our clients. But in the big picture, if I try to use a little chronology the way that I did before that there was an era of commercial innovation years ago, which was make the field more effective. That was 10 year, that was the 10 year ago question. And then the seven or so year ago question was, what if I could, what if I could do something other than just promote with a field? What if I had omni-channel marketing and digital marketing? And for the last five to seven years in that window, that began the investments of many of our clients building digital marketing omni-channel teams and capabilities and technologies and strategies. 
But what was implicit in that, and some companies explicit, was that was supposed to be the, quote, alternative to the field. This is a different model. It's lower cost. It's many different promises. But it was a competing model, if you will. And all, although companies would would draw a diagram where the field was one of the more important channels, the, 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 the effort by many companies was, let me see if I can do some stuff with digital without the field. And as you forward in time to the last couple of years, the data that we've seen is that all of these many, if not most of these pure digital marketing promotion, omni-channel investments haven't really yielded. I mean, yes, they carry two, 3% of the brand's impact and revenue, but they're still an order of magnitude less impactful than these human beings we have talking to customers. And what we also see is that when we do things to merge those, maybe we take the stuff that's in a human being's brain, a sales rep's brain, and let them help us inform how we what content that customer might care about in a digital channel. Then suddenly the one plus one in an old way, one plus one is three. And we're not talking about two or three percent top line impact. We're talking about seven, eight, nine, ten percent top line impact. And so our kind of phrase over the last couple of years was human is the new digital. We need to embrace the customer facing model has a human element to it where we intimately know our customers and their knowledge can be infused in the rest of our digital marketing. Our data can be driven back to the field and we need to have a more integrated kind of digital field type of model. Now that's that's, I think, starting to get some traction because we've, we spent a lot of time evangelizing that and not to be lost. In the earlier part of this conversation, I was pointing out that we need to not also just be focused on marketing and the field models anymore. But in that space, this is the vector that we think is going to give the most impact. This is a question I invariably ask just about everybody I talk to these days, but it might not apply to your study at all, Ray. But how about the new measures in the Inflation Reduction Act? Do you think that's going to impact how companies conduct their commercialization at all? I don't don't know how to say without a doubt in an even more (laughs) pronounced way, but without a doubt, right? There are some very obvious... So if we take off the question of how will it affect our portfolios, which is a big question, and I think a lot of people are discussing that right now. And if we take off the question, of course, how will it affect our profitability, a pricing point of view, those are invariably big questions. But if you just ask the question, how will it affect the commercial model? If frankly, in my opinion, it amplifies the point that we started this conversation with, which becomes... The complexities of access, pricing, tendering are only increasingly even more important than ever. If you look at the study we published, it was fascinating that when you asked in the blinded data that we did, we hired a company to research, the number one area, the number one and number two areas of investment for the last five years, self-reported by pharma executives in commercial was the field model and marketing. The number one area that they thought was going to impact their success commercially and growth over the next five years was market access and pricing. And so what got them here is not what's going to get them there. And that has everything to do with the Inflation Reduction Act. It's knock on effects in the private market, the complexities it's going to create in navigating buy and bill, the dynamics and the practices. This is going to need to be 
the centerpiece of many commercial models and no longer just an enabling commercial function. And I think the data in the study shows that. Along with that, there's now sort of a push to reform the pharmacy benefit manager system. How would that affect anything commercial-wise? Yeah, it's, it is... In some ways, the other half of the, that's an oversimplification, but the other half of this market, right? So you've got, again, dramatic simplification with the IRA working on the public side and the PBMs while they manage some public plans. They're the private side and it will, depending on where they take it, once again, upend the expectations and the the dynamics of market access. And Lots of things have been toyed with over the years, removal of the safe harbor to get rid of rebates, which didn't happen, or changing the business model to PBMs. That could go a lot of different ways. And the the companies who are well positioned to have leading access pricing and economic capabilities are the ones who are going to be best positioned for that. Where that goes is still probably anybody's guess if it does. Ray, and you mentioned this old adage earlier, and you've told me in the past that that you don't care for this old adage that <laughs> what got you here won't get you there. But I think it definitely applies to your report. In other words, they really companies really need to do things differently than they have in the past. Can you just talk about that a little bit as a wrap up? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think I, I just don't like cliches. I, I guess I, I found myself falling <laughs> into this one, but in a at a summary level, I would say. If, if, the, if people who read this or are listening to this take nothing else away from what we're suggesting, just take this away. If all we focus on as an industry is better marketing, better omni-channel, better field, better digital, which is where most companies have been focused, we're going to miss the need to put more innovation, more fresh thinking into areas like access, pricing, patient services, and navigating all the economic hurdles. We're going to miss the need to better exploit the data and analytics investments that we've made to be more automated in how we work. We're going to miss the opportunity to be more human and think about diversity and equity and inclusion and how we show up in front of customers. And we're going to miss the rest of the commercial model that matters. And so I'm compelled to say that the two things we talked about before are are never going to not be critically important. It's just that there's more now that needs as much time, attention, investment, and energy as I think there ever was before. Interesting, enlightening stuff from you, Ray. Uh, Thanks a lot. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Kevin. I really enjoyed it and I, I hope others find value in it. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.